A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Westminster Reimagined, a special series on the New Statesman podcast that looks at how politics works and if it can be done better. Back in June, we wanted to ask, is democracy under threat? We recorded this episode in front of a live audience at the New Statesman's Politics Live event. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Armando. And in this special episode of Westminster Reimagined, recorded in front of an audience at the New Statesman's Politics Live conference, we're joined by two very special guests the CEO of Republic, Graham Smith, and the co-founder of Operation Black Vote and principal of Homerton College at Cambridge University and crossbench peer, Simon Woolley. And today we'll be asking them, is democracy under threat? Now, Amanda, should we be concerned about the state of democracy in the well, UK today? Well, of course today? we should, yes. <laughs> the reason I, I thought... Um, this would be a, a lovely thing to look at is uh, I remember in an earlier series of the podcast, we would talk about autocracy and, you know, an autocrat like Putin or Erdogan or Orban uh, emerge in the UK. And we got some constitutional experts on, we got some electoral and political uh, experts on, and they started by saying, well, of course not. There are lots of safeguards here. And then as the conversation went on, it dawned on both of them that actually a lot of these safeguards really rely on there being pretty decent people in charge in that a lot of our constitution, which doesn't actually exist in any written form, is dependent on people sort of being good eggs, really, and just, you know, playing along by the un unwritten rules. So what happens if you have a bad egg in charge? And, and, and you know, along came Boris Johnson with his tearing up uh, of agreements that already been negotiated getting ministers to stand up in in parliament and say, you know, we will be breaking international law, but only in a very limited sense. And I thought, well, this is this is where we are. And 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 what are the safeguards therefore that we have uh in place that that you know fortunately Boris was, you know, a, a seismic buffoon and left the stage. But what happens when a much more together and uh, focused autocrat or someone with autocratic tendencies comes along? So I thought that would be uh, an interesting starting point, really, of something that's been peeving me for quite some time. Mm, and I think one of those constitutional experts that we had on the podcast actually ended up saying things could descend into tyranny very quickly. Yes, didn't he? I know. <laughs> and he started off telling us that we were being very over the top and, and hysterical. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a good day, I think, to be having this conversation because we have recently had the results of how voter ID, which was used for the first time in England in the local elections have affected people's voting. So tens of thousands of people were turned away from polling stations, but those are the people 
who turned up, the numbers could be much bigger. 4% of those who didn't vote said they didn't turn out because of the need for ID. And that was disproportionately disabled people and the unemployed as well. And that's a report from the Electoral Commission, uh, whose own remit has been changed by the government. So it now has to respond to the minister in charge and the minister sets the remit for the Electoral Commission. So it's no longer even an independent body. So that's part of this process of governments acquiring more and more power and away from there being independent in, uh, insights and independent limits and supervision of powers and so on. And of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was a minister who supported bringing voter ID in, has since admitted that it was an attempt to gerrymander the voting system. Yes, he said the, the old system was perfectly decent and worked perfectly well. And in fact, it probably prevented more Tory voters from voting than, than, than Labour, <laughs> which was an admission that the whole thing was set up in the first place to, to suppress the vote. I was also intrigued by the fact that they said, in the official report said that, you know, 99.7% of people who voted in the elections were able to vote and, and only 0.3% uh, were turned away, which is still, as you say, 14,000 people. But the government response was to say, the, but this shows that remarkably how effective the policy was in that 99.3% of people were able to vote, forgetting that the previous number was 100%. So actually it had gone down because it didn't pose this law. And it's like saying that, you know, the voyage of the Hindenburg was actually 99.7% successful. You know, it, it's the missing bit that's actually the crucial thing here. But the fact that they could try, you know, smother this scandal with a kind of uh, positive spin by playing the numbers game, again, I think just points to the fact how easy politicians now feel that they can get away with it. Yeah, and of course the pretext was that they were trying to avoid electoral fraud, but actually examples of fraud are very low in this country. Between 2010 and 2018, two people were convicted of that particular type of electoral fraud, impersonating yeah. someone at a polling station. So yes, exactly. it so really is a solution in search of a problem. Something else we're going to be talking about when we bring our guests on shortly is the threat to the right to protest, mm. which actually was demonstrated recently very starkly in the protests against the King's coronation, where Graham Smith, our guest who's about to come up, and a number of other protesters were actually arrested and held before they'd even started protesting. Yes, and surprisingly were then released because, well, I'll ask him. I'll ask him. We'll ask him. that. that process, yes. But yes, that was from provisions of the Public Order Act, which passed earlier this year and has made legislation far more draconian towards protests. So I think we should bring our yes, guests on. Absolutely. I'm pleased that we're joined by two very special guests who have a first-hand experience of these attacks on our democratic rights. Graham Smith is the chief executive of the UK's Republican pressure group, Republic. He was arrested on the day of the King's coronation and held in custody for 18 hours before being released without any action despite having discussed and agreed with the police how the group could protest for weeks in advance. His new book, Abolish the Monarchy, Why We Should and How We Will, is now out. And Simon Woolley is the co-founder of Operation Black Vote. They were campaigning to register and increase the turnout of black voters at general elections and have seen firsthand the impact of the new voter ID laws making it harder for people to vote. Well, thanks so much for joining us, both of you. Graham, I thought we'd start with you as we've just been talking about your experience at the coronation. Can you tell us, for the sake of the audience who may not have heard the story, what happened? We were planning on a large protest out on Trafalgar Square at the time of the coronation. And um, 
one of the reasons why we campaign against the monarchy is so that we have a better con- constitution with better checks and balances and protections of our rights. So it's ironic that uh, we were the first people to be arrested under this new law. And we'd had four months of discussions, including two one-hour-long meetings with the superintendent, silver commander of the policing of the protest and of the coronation generally. We were there very early in the morning. We'd stayed over on St. Mary's Lane two nights before. We had a van full of placards, which we had brought down from where it was parked in North London. And we were on Trafalgar Square at 6 a.m. There were quite a lot of royalists on the, down on Trafalgar Square before us, which we were surprised at. But we were immediately descended upon by a load of police, including the bronze commander, who had been fully briefed about who we were and what we were doing. And they gave, certainly gave the impression that they didn't know who we were or what we were doing. We then back up to meet the van on St. Mary's Lane. And at that point, when we opened the back of the van to show all these Not My King placards, we were then surrounded by what they called territorial support group police who were not interested at all in the fact that we'd had these meetings, mm-hmm. were not interested in contacting the liaison officer who we'd spoken to for four months, um, searched the van and, uh, and then arrested six of us on St. Martin's Lane. And a few hours later, two of our other volunteers, two of our other protesters were arrested for being in possession of megaphones. Is that a crime? To be no, honest, it's not a crime. No, no, not yet. No. I mean, no, no one, none of the eight people have committed a single crime, which is yes. the yeah. being released bit. It was quite appalling, both their attitude and their clear intention to make arrests. They put out a press release saying that we'd been arrested under one act. And then they correct. Then later on in the day, they rearrested me under that act to make sure the press release came, matched with the actual arrest <laughs> record. Um, I suspect they'd written the press release the day before, knowing for well what they were going to do. But that's just my cynicism. But I cannot believe there is a simple breakdown in communication because it seemed a fairly deliberate effort to disrupt and diminish the protest. And Did you have anything in writing about the previous discussions that things have been? Various emails, backwards and forwards, yeah. text messages, phone call uh, records and so on. It was all fairly well documented. And I, as I said, I, I know that the liaison officer, they they have these um, people who are dedicated to liaising with protesters. And as I said, they've got protesters in London every day. I mean, hundreds of them every day, everywhere. So these people with light blue bibs are there to liaise. And on the whole, they're not bad. They do quite a good job. But um, I know that one of them briefed the the senior officers, including the bronze commander who was on the ground, but they just didn't seem to care on the day. So, And obviously we want to more details yep. later, but I want to bring Simon in as well. But just, just one thing, when they released you, did they say why they'd released you? Well, we were released on bail to begin right. with. Um, and we were bailed to return in August, but then two days later, um, they phoned the solicitor and said that there'd be no further action. And then two hours after that, they turned up on my doorstep whilst I was in the middle of doing a P- uh, BBC interview down the line, uh, handed my phone back and apologised. But um, the police have since said they are not apologising. They're only expressing a regret that we couldn't protest. Okay. Does it just strike me that, you know, when you come up with a law that says, gives the police powers to arrest people on the pretext that they might be about to commit a crime, you're going to end up with something that falls apart because there will be no evidence because you haven't done it yet. Well, this is the strange thing. I mean, we we had some luggage straps, which were very um, flimsy, cheap things I bought from Amazon a few days before because we had large numbers of placards and two trolleys. Mm. And the whole point was to cause minimum disruption is to put the strap them to the trolleys, get them down to the spot where we were protesting, put the trolleys and the straps back in the van, take the van away. And they said, well, you've got straps. 
Um, and therefore you're going equipped to lock on, which is the new act, the new law that offence had come in. Um, and as our lawyers pointed out, you can't simply arrest something for ha- someone for being in possession of something which may or may not be able to lock you on. You have to have suspicion of intent. And as I pointed out at the Commons Committee, you know, I, I, I turned up at that committee room with five items of locking on gear, my tie, my belt, my watch, yeah. my shoelaces. So, you know, it is, it is absurd to suggest that I can be arrested for being in possession of those things. And that, that's a kind of indicator, well, we'll get onto it in a minute, but the, of, of laws that are rushed, really laws to create headlines, but in fact are poorly thought through and can't really kind of be enacted when they, they, can't, they don't stand up to the light of day. And, and Simon, the, the reports that we were talking about from the Electoral Commission and, and so on, from your perspective, what's been the effect of the voter ID law? Uh, well, your, your question was, is democracy under threat? And, uh, and I think there's a, it's a complicated answer. Yes, uh, but there has been some good news. For example, I've been fighting social and racial justice for over three decades. And uh, that we demanded a voice, we demanded to, to be listened to in Westminster and uh, across the piece. And I think in one aspect, we've made progress because let's not forget when we started Operation Black Vote in 1996, there were four Black, Asian and minority ethnic MPs. Now there are over 60. And, you know, we have a brown prime minister. We had a black chancellor. That didn't work out. I think there were other reasons it did. <laughs> I think so. Um, but nevertheless, nevertheless, unless you're vigilant, uh, we, we've seen a lot of that be undermined. And the voter ID mm-hmm. thing is, is one in, in point. And what we're seeing is voter suppression. I mean, you know, when you, when you highlighted the fact that there was one or two cases of fraud when 40 plus million people vote, then you have to ask, well, what is the real objective here? And, and we, know, we know that there's a reluctance from certain people just to, to go to the ballot box. One, because they say, what's the point? Uh, and two, because they say, well, do they want me for another reason? And that's particularly so with Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities. And, and we told the government this, what is your objective? Is it to enhance democracy or stifle it? Because if you wanted to enhance it, what you would do is you, you would go to the colleges, you would go to the universities and you, you would say, let's have, I know, automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're automatically registered to vote and then you just have to show up and, and have some kind of a card and vote. But instead of that, instead of making it easy and making it inclusive, they're saying, we're going to stop you. We're going to stop you. We're going to stop you. We're going to give you a hard time. And it's proven to be the case. So it is a deep worry. And along with that, you've got two other, for me, very big issues that have come to the fore very recently. One is one of the reasons why um, we started Operation Black Vote back in the 90s, because, because fit and healthy black people were going into police custody and coming out dead. And no one was being held to account. And so we said, we need a voice, not to ask for justice, but, but to demand it. 30 years later, we see the Louise Casey report mm-hmm. saying a lot of that stuff is still going on. And actually, not just to black people, but to, to women and, and to other groups. And so you go forward and then go back. And I think that society needs to say, we've had enough. We've had enough of this and we've got to start making demands. 
I'd love to ask both of you, actually, because you've both been sort of campaigning in your respective fields for a long time, what direction you feel like things are going in. So, Simon, you talked about some progress, but also yep. you felt that there's some slipping backwards as well. A lot of, a lot of slipping back. A lot of slipping back. And, um, and Graham, you've been protesting with Republic for, for a long time. Is, are these latest protest laws making life a lot more difficult for you and your, your peers than in the past? Yeah, almost certainly. Yes, absolutely. I'm not as experienced a protester as some, but I think that it's certainly a lot harder. Now, we're, we're protesting in Edinburgh next week when Charles goes up there for a mini coronation. One's not enough. He needs another one just to make sure everyone knows he's king. And we're going up there <laughs> and the um, Edinburgh police are talking to us. We've got the liaison officer on the phone and they said, look, you know, we're very, we're not the Met. We're very pro, you know, human rights protection of right to protest and all the rest of it. And I said, that's, that's lovely to hear, but that is word for word what the Met told me. Right. And then they said, do you want a meeting with our silver commander? I said, why would I do that? I've had two meetings with the Met silver commander. So they have made their own lives far harder and they're going to get less cooperation from protesters because what's the point in having all those meetings and discussions when they just abandon all their reassurances? But I do think overall things are slipping. And part of the problem is that the, the gains that we're getting, such as better representation, it's all sort of what I might call social and political gains, but it, there are no constitutional checks and balances yes. that stop the sliding back. Yes. And so everything can be undone. Yeah. And I wrote about this in the book about defenestration. Now, he resigned. If he hadn't resigned, how do they get rid of him? Because the only person with the constitutional power to sack him was the monarch who was not going to do that. And that's just one example of where the, the whole constitution is, is very weak. And too much power is in the hands of government. Parliament is seen to be there to do the government's bidding. Parliament itself has no real limits on power. I mean, we, 50 years ago, that Lord Helsham, a conservative peer, um, talked about an elective dictatorship. And it is that power of government, regardless of what Yes, and there is a, 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 a trend now also post-Brexit to take back, the, the idea is to take back control of laws that were based with the EU back into the UK, but not to Westminster, is to give those powers to the ministers. So that again, that's, that's a, a buildup of further power within Whitehall and the departments and the executive with no legislative oversight. But I think another dangerous element of um, slipping back is, is the way that certain politicians and ministers are, are playing this for culture wars. And, yes. And, you know, what's deeply troubling for me is that those politicians to win a few grubby votes will, you know, genuinely pit poor white people against poor black people. And, you know, we saw in Brexit and we saw in some of the Northern seats, it paid dividends. Mm. And the division, the, that division within communities, when, when people are told, well, you're there because of that lot talking about white privilege and then saying that, um, you know, all that lot with the money and you've got nothing. And I just think it's, it's heartbreaking. Mm. It's particularly heartbreaking for me when I see black and brown politicians doing that. You know, I wanted, I wanted to see more black and brown faces in high places, but I never dreamt for a moment that some of those faces would throw their own people under the bus. I'll mention no names. Um, can I mention Rishi Shunak's name then? Because um, when he was campaigning against uh, Liz Truss and lost, he, he was talking about, and we really want to, you know, come down heavy on the lefty lawyers. And I just thought, hang on a minute. 
This isn't how law works in this country. Right. You know, judgments and decisions, legal decisions, are made by juries and judges. Yep. So really, he's having a go at lefty juries, lefty judges. Yeah. You know, he's 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 attacking yep. uh, the political views of the people who are quite entitled to represent you if you so choose. The trouble is with this is that this narrative gets normalized. Hmm. And, you know, we, we, we've seen it in the States. Hmm. The United States is such a divided nation. And I'm just hoping that, that we don't go down that slippery slope because, because getting it back yeah. is really difficult. I mean, we've seen with, with Brexit, many of us that argued that to, to remain and said that there was a strain of uh, xenophobia, which I think there, there was is that when you pointed that out, are you calling this all racist? And so, you know, when you have this divide and rule, you can't have a sensible conversation. And, it, and it's only now that people are seeing the whole Brexit thing unravel and uh, the opportunities, the opportunities for our kids to live and work abroad and study abroad. I mean, I, I'm in one of the, I'd like to say, one of the best universities in the world. And in mainland Europe, they're not coming. They're not coming to the UK. That's a, that's a problem when you have the politics, the politics of xenophobia, the politics of divide and rule. We can all lament about where we are and we should. I think that the real conversation is what do we do to pull things back? Mm -hmm. yeah. what, how, do we, how do we empower the powerless, those that feel powerless? How do we, I mean, what I would like to see the new statesmen do, for example, is to join in coalitions with other uh, media uh, outlets and have the biggest voter registration drive we've ever seen. Now, why doesn't that happen? Because, I mean, it's, it is a big thing with the Democrats, and the, the, especially in the presidential elections. Yep. They, they really put their effort into getting registration yeah. because they know they're fighting lots of suppression. Why do parties not have a kind of well-oiled machine yeah. that will get registration. See, what they do is they just focus on, let's, let's focus on the people that, that, are, that are voting. And, of, and often, actually, they veer towards pensioners because they know yes. that actually vote. Mm -hmm. and, yet, and yet there are millions, literally millions, who are saying, there's no point. I, I don't care. Mm -hmm. It's hard work getting somebody that is cynical about politics and about politicians. I often call it that they're in minus 20. And I've got to get them to zero mm -hmm. and then to vote in. We have to invest in them. But I, th I think the, yeah. the main reason why the big parties don't do a big vote to registration push is there's, there's nothing in it for them because they, the Labour and the Tories can win the uh, oh, but there large... Is. Well, no, but there is. Hang on, hang well, on a second. No, because... Politically and electorally, they can both win elections with the system as it is, and they do, and that's their focus. And I think that part of the issue is the electoral system, which is absolutely rotten. Part of it is the constitution, which is absolutely rotten. And I, and I do say that, you know, yes, America has slid a long way down into this morass of division. But if we go down that same route, unlike America, we don't have any breaks and checks. Mm. They keep on sliding backwards, but there are court cases, there are challenges in the Supreme Court, there are various different levels of democracy that can keep on breaking and, when, and checking. When you said you were charged with being in possession, or someone was charged with being in possession of a megaphone, and, and I said, is that illegal? Not technically, no. The, the fact that the police are free to interpret what is a very sloppily thought through, it, it, you know, you can't protest if you're loud, you can't protest if you get in the way. You can't. Look at the word protest. I mean, by definition, it's an expression 
of a contrary opinion and a kind of irritation with the status quo, you get to the absurd level when you can only protest if you're being quite polite and agreeable yes. about something. But this was the, at the Home Affairs Select Committee um, a few weeks ago. Tim Loughton MP seemed to be making some suggestions because he was trying to push me on whether or not we were going to be disruptive. Now, you can be disruptive by jumping in front of a horse in the uh, King's procession, or you can be disrupted by shouting loudly on a megaphone. Now, we were not going to do the first, but we were going to do the latter. But he seemed to think then, and I get the impression that Suella Braveman thinks this as well, is that legitimate protest is standing quietly on the side of the street not being noticed. And I don't think that is legitimate protest. You should be able to do things which annoy and disrupt other people because that's how you get your point across. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And you've both mentioned the states. Um, I did wonder how both of your experiences and the conversation that we're having now has affected your view of what Britain is. We had some polling out recently that showed how important it is to the public that Britain is free and they see Britain as a free country. But actually from what we've been saying and from um, you know the reflections that you've been giving us this afternoon, it feels as if that's sort of in contention. So do you feel that you're living in a different Britain than perhaps when you started out on your both of your work? I do think there's a slippery slope and the, the normalisation of demonising communities has to be arrested. I mean, you know, I think that there's, there's some quotes that saying, just keep lying, just keep lying. And, and at some point they'll believe the lie. And this is the kind of the state that, that we're in. But I want to come back to this thing about that it's a rigged system. And yes, it, it needs overhauling, but let's be clear about this. If people are registered to vote mm-hmm. and uh, that in hundreds, 100%, there is no such thing as a safe seat. Elections are a numbers game, a numbers game. And when you look at the numbers, if you empower people, then, of course, that politician that sits with a 20,000 majority is still under threat. And there's there's another thing about this too, which we're missing. And that is, if we're not careful, we have a generation leaving college and leaving university that have a disjunct from the democratic process and from engaging. And my view is, is that we need to have citizenship classes actually in primary school mm-hmm. and, saying, and saying these institutions belong to you and they work best when you're involved. And if you, rather than the young kids with the Black Lives Matter protest, you'll all know it was the biggest protest, the longest protest this country has ever seen. And I think it, it, it shook the system. So we do need to protest. Yep. That's why we've got, the, we've got the change. The tragedy, the tragedy is, is that there wasn't that link between protest and democratic action. Mm. And I think that unless you get that both in place, then you're always just subject to protesting. Why but, uh, can, I, can I just very quickly, I mean, the, the thing about, the, you know, if you have everybody registered, there's no such thing as a safe seat. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at before. The parties don't want no such thing as a safe seat. They like their safe seats. And so it's not in their political interest to really push 
uh, for voter registration. Certainly in my interest and in our interest, and I fully agree that we should have automatic registration, electoral form, and all the rest of it. But the thing about having citizenship classes and teaching people that these institutions are theirs is that when you look at these institutions, they don't look like theirs. They look like someone else's. They look like institutions built for the great and the good, the rich and the well-educated, the Etonians and the people that went to Oxford and Cambridge. And when you have, just to you know, push a point that I'm always pushing, your head of state is, you don't even get a choice. You just get told it's going to be this guy because his mum had it before them. And they're so, you know, apparently they have different color blood running through their veins. This is not a credible, sustainable uh, democracy, in my view. It is a very poor, second-rate democracy. And if we want to have this notion of citizenship, then we actually have to be citizens with our rights and our, our freedoms guaranteed in the Constitution that we get to control and that we get to write down and pass and that we put limits on the power of politicians so that we have a stronger parliament in the face of government and a stronger people in, in the face of parliament. And if we can do that, then citizenship classes will mean something. But why, why are the two main political parties uh, complacent about the youth vote? I, I remember a, a Labour MP telling me, if it's the last day, one more day, of electionary to go, the vote's the next day. It's later, it's the evening, you've got 600 leaflets, you've got three hours. There's a student halls of residence there or there's a care home there. Where do you go for You go to the care home because they will vote, whereas the students probably won't. I once had a politician come to me and said, uh, Mr. Simon Woolley, big shot activist, do me a favor. And I said, what favor should I do you? He said, go to the black community and say, thank you. And I went, what should I say thank you for? He said, tell them thank you for not voting. Oh. To my face. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, why should I say thank you? He said, because I don't, it means I don't have to knock on their door. And this is why I push back and say, look, you have this vote. It costs nothing. And they want you to stay at home. And I, d I think you're right. I do think the political parties are lazy. They're lazy and they're complacent. And that's why, that's why the new statesmen and, and other entities have got to say this. We're not relying on the political parties. The reason why Operation Black Vote made a big difference is because we made a, a, a significant decision very early on. Unlike African-Americans who put all their eggs in the democratic basket, what we said is, is that we want to be non-partisan and we want all the political parties vying for the black vote so we could tackle racial injustice. And, and I think that's why Dramatically, the conservatives started putting black and brown faces in winnable seats. And picking on Graham's point about, I think there's also a kind of generational divide is now happening. Like you were talking about younger potential voters not being attracted to taking part in elections because what is the point? I know that in the course of discussing and legislating the voter ID, the House of Lords tried to put in an amendment saying, you know, it's very easy for older voters to, to get the ID from their travel passes, the over 60 passes, but younger voters are not allowed to use the student cards and whatever. So they put in an amendment saying you can use passports, you can use uh, electricity bills, you can use all sorts of, and it was struck off. Sure. But this is struck out. But this is two things to pick up on this is mm. that firstly, the weakness of the Lords is that whatever the Lords does, the Commons can strike it out on the instruction of the government. And now they're trying to use secondary legislation through Privy Council to change the definition of protest so that it becomes almost impossible to protest unless you have uh, the permission of the police force, the local police officers. I would also say, with no disrespect to Simon, that the House of Lords is part of the problem 
of looking at the constitution <laughs> and not seeing yourself. Mm. You know, and I um people my worry though is it's it's when they talk about reforming the House of Lords. My worry is that they reform it in such a way that it becomes much more party political than it is. Well it is now. quite party political. I mean the actual Reform Society did a report on this saying that the vast majority of people who turn up each day and do anything in the Lords are those who are signed up and whipped. Um, you know, and I would say that there it is very doable. If you look at Australia, for example, that's a fully elected parliament. It's very doable. Yes, it's still parties, but it's a different mix of parties, a different balance of power. And also, I just think that if you're going to be in parliament making decisions on what laws we have, uh, you should be elected. I actually got interviewed by Nadine Doris the other day on Talk TV. Mm-hmm. Um, not the most insightful interview, but I mean, she said she started off, it was just after she found out she wasn't going to get a peerage. And she sort of said rather bitterly, um, you know, it doesn't bother me anymore, but why do you think we should get rid of the House of Lords? And um, and I just said, well, you know, you stood for election to the Commons. Why can't you stand for election to the Upper House? I just think it's fairly simple. I mean, in, de- in defence, look, I do think there should be reform of the, the House of Lords. It's complicated. Uh, but let me say this. Be careful what you wish for. Mm. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some of the best political debates right now happen in the House of Lords. They do. And that's because... That's because there are literally, literally tens, if not hundreds of people in the Lords that care about democracy. It's undermined by recent prime ministers that have put their chums in there. And, and we have our heads in, the, in our the hands. Well, there you, you know. go. There you go. But, but there is good debate. Yeah. There is good debate. And, and the thing is, is this, is that, that you know, when we, look at, when we look at America, when we look at just how tribal both houses are because they're elected, by the way, then, you, then you know, we've got to be careful about what we actually wish for. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm going to push back slightly very quickly. I know this is Just quick, based on the House of Lords, but um, I do think it's a damning diamond on our democracy if we have to, ex- have to appoint people to have a decent debate. We should have an electoral system that allows us to vote for people who are good politicians, who care about democracy and who can have good debates. And you can do that in both houses. We're not a binary party system like in the United States. We're a multi-party system. You would have different majorities in both houses and you can have serious debates. And it's also a parliamentary system, not a presidential one, so you wouldn't have the same sort of gridlock. Australia does this and it does it pretty well. Australian politics can be pretty rocky sometimes, but they do actually manage to do this without too much trouble. And I do think, again, that if you want people to engage and if you want to stop bad laws going through, then make sure that the people... The voters, the public, have as much power and leverage in Parliament as possible. The first hand I saw go up at the back, um, the man in the glasses there, I think he's wearing a blue shirt. Hello, we've had quite a discussion of electoral democracy. Uh, We've also seen attacks on trade union rights, starting with the 2016 Trade Union Act. Uh, We've also seen uh, legislation passed to um, limit the extent to which public sector workers can, can go on strike. Um, in addition to allowing firms to bring in agency workers, and that's on top of you know firms like Amazon using union busting tactics to try and get in the way of um, people from organising in their workplaces. So I wonder if the panel could also comment on uh, workplace democracy. Thank you. I mean, I would just sort of say to sort of underline an earlier point. I mean, there was a, a quote from Ian Hislop a long time ago, not long after Tony Blair left office, and he said, I think it was actually on. I've got news for you. He said, we are governed by the principle of one man, one vote, and that one man is Gordon Brown. And the, the point is that the, once you've had the election and you counted the votes and MPs are, are declared, all the power goes into Downing Street. And so 
laws that are unjust and laws which I suspect most people wouldn't agree with, such as restricting people's trade union rights, um, go through because the Commons has a bloated majority for one side, which is largely under the control of the government and the, the person in Downing Street. And so there's very few people really making good decisions about policy and very little power in the hands of the people to resist and stop them. Speaking as a civil servant for a number of years, one of the things that I'm proud of being a civil servant is that we look at the evidence, we express it in a frank way, and regardless of who our elected representative is or who, what their ideology is, we're going to give them the facts, they're going to make the decision. Um, so it's personally very disheartening when I kind of read up in the news that people you, you work with and often quite amicable then say to journalists, well, um, we were obstructed and I've never known a civil servant who wants to obstruct, like, you know, it's more like Terry, we want to try and do a good job and then get home by five. <laughs> but, uh, have you, um, I don't know how much you're allowed to say, but have you experienced a politicization of the, of the civil, the, the fact that ministers now are much more liable to blame the civil service for when something goes wrong and, you know, you're part of the blob or the, it's more what I've been reading about and I'm in, yeah. I'm in a team where I've actually had really good relationships with ministers, but I do know colleagues who, you know, look, it can be amusing where somebody go, one of my colleagues went on their lunch, they come back, they've got a re-smog, um, sorry, you were out working from home. Um, no, I just popped out to get a sandwich. Um, and then there's kind of the more serious things you read about. But the question I have is, do you think when we're meant to have an impartial civil service where we can't defend ourselves publicly, we're not elected, to then have those attacks, is that part of this undermining of democracy? I think, I think you're being dramatically undermined by the, the, the political discourse at the moment. And of course, the, today's news about the Rwanda policy which cost 169,000 per person. And as you said, in the past, these policies would be evidence-led, not politically motivated to pit poor white people against poor black people. And yet here we are seeing, seeing that played out and you must feel utterly powerless because too often you're disregarded. Um, so I feel for you. And there's been, especially the last three years, uh, the turnover of permanent departmental secretaries just being kicked out and then replaced by much more amenable, apparently, uh, permanent secretaries, which, is, which means that actually the civil service, which is there as an enormous resource and expertise, is just not being used to its, its fullest potential, really, isn't it? Because It's not just the civil service, is it? It's also the public public bodies. I mean, yeah. it, I used to hold in high esteem the Equality mm. and Human Rights Commission. And then someone thought, okay, well, now how can we dampen that down? Well, let, well let's, put our, let's put our own people in there that, um, that yeah. will make it and this not is what, respected. This is why I think there is, it all comes back to the fact that the ministers have far too much control and power. Mm. And you know, they, an independent civil service should be genuinely independent. And parliament should have the power to slap down ministers that try and attack their independence. And parliament should have some say in confirming appointments, for example, so that they, the ministers can't just gerrymander uh, yes, right. rig yeah. all of these supposedly independent bodies. Like a parallel civil service being brought up, which is the, the growth and number of special advisors who are brought in by the minister. <laughs> you flinched when I mentioned that. <laughs> I've also noticed now that if you have a minister for universities or a minister for equalities, 
the job is not protecting and speaking up for that particular sector. It's actually attacking them, which is quite an odd trend. Um, I'm being gestured towards the back. Hi, thanks very much. I want to uh, ask a question about uh, what Graham was talking about, and that is the overreach of the government in using secondary legislation to quash what the House of Lords had voted down from the government, which to re- was, was to remove the most chilling effects of this new Public Order Act. What does the panel think about the fact that Labour lords were whipped to abstain on a fatal motion put forward by Jenny Jones, which would have sent it back and not been able to pass? What do people think of that? Severely undermined our democracy, in my opinion. Personally, I think that Labour have been fairly shameful, not just on that, but also on the laws that um, I was arrested under. Um, Starmer's response to those arrests was, well, let, let's uh, let the law bed in for a while. Um, I tweeted in response saying, well, I was allowed to bed in for 16 hours, but um, I'd rather <laughs> not do that again. And I, I think that Labour has been shamefully uh, cowardly about some of these uh, pieces of legislation. They should be standing up for um, what they, I hope, they believe. I mean, Starmer, I believe, was a uh, a lawyer of good standing who fought good cases and fought against things like the death penalty overseas. He seems to have abandoned all that. And I think that they need to have a good, long, hard look at themselves. And also just on the, the, the wider issue of what we touched on before about voter registration and so on, they need to do things which show that they still have that heart of principle and they aren't simply getting into power in order to get the toys out. The suggestion of uh, giving the vote to 16, 17-year-olds, which would... Good best. idea. Um, and I, I thought that in the independence referendum up in Scotland, I thought it was really interesting that 16, 17-year-olds yeah. were yeah. Uh, given the vote on that. I thought it would be disastrous, but in fact, it was really energizing and exciting to, see, galvanized. to see them actually fully engaged right. in, in these issues. And that might be one way, like Graham, you were talking about yeah. the fact that they feel you know divorced from the, the conversation because it's not, you've got nothing to do with them. You know, if if it means something because they have the vote and they have yeah. to make that decision. But you still need better citizenship education. Um, yeah, there's a lot of responsibility with having a vote and people need to know the tools and understanding um, about what they're enga- engaging in. But, you know, to me, it's not an either or. You can do both. But it has to be a structural thing, I think, because even if you can vote, if what you're voting for and if the election system and the parliament you vote for is still the same as it is now... A lot. Of, you're still going to have that problem of people saying, "Well, why should I bother? What difference does it make? If you still have safe seats, what difference does it make?" And I've, you know, I've, I go to European countries to talk to other Republican movements, and I see their parliaments uh, in places like Sweden, for example, where they just feel a lot younger as yeah. a parliament, yeah. and they feel a lot more modern and democratic and liberal. Because in a way, I suppose they're similar to the Scottish Parliament. You might be more familiar with is that it's not this weird Gothic building with these no. imperialistic. Uh, overtones. It's uh, um, it's Scottish Parliament is a public building you can yeah. walk in and out of. You can have you know yeah. you can book a room that you know it's Westminster is very much this yeah. is not for the likes of you. I mean it is built. Uh, you know the, the whole edifice looks like you're saying you're not allowed in. Yeah, there, you know yeah. we ought to carry on with questions. I think we've Some got time for one very quick one. Oh wow! Yeah, no pressure. The last one. Uh, go with the hand up. Made with the hand up there. Yes, yes. There we go. Hi. Thank you very much. Um, going back to the voter ID and the Conservatives admitting that they were using this to try and rig the vote in their favour, Labour has recently floated the idea of extending the vote to EU nationals and 16 and 17-year-olds. Analysis has shown that these groups are more likely to vote Labour. 
Were this enacted, do you think this is just a policy or do you think they are also trying to deliberately influence a democratic process? It's <laughs> a really good question. I think there, I mean, it is, there is very much a kind of, well, if you're going to do it, then mm. how, how can we do it? You know, the, but as Armando said, there is precedent elsewhere in the UK for, for the 16, 17 year. So yes. it's less out of the blue. I think as we spoke about at the beginning, the voter ID was on this sort of false pretext of electoral fraud that doesn't actually happen in this country. Whereas the idea of extending the franchise to 16 to 17 year olds already has a precedent here as well as, you know, it seems a bit silly not to allow EU citizens and indeed other people who have had migrant heritage who have settled here from having a say over their policies and their public services. I felt slightly disenfranchised during the independence debate because uh, Scottish-born nationals living outside Scotland weren't given the vote, whereas, you know, someone studying engineering at Strathclyde University from Spain could vote <laughs> on the destiny of Scotland, you know, whereas I couldn't. It's I mean, there's no right and wrong, but it, it's these, as you, as you say, it's, I think it's these little, um, this cynical and quite overt attempts to, as, as Jacob Rees-Mogg admitted, to change the system in their favour is, I think, it's reached a level that I think it's, it's, shocking. it's, sh it's shocking he feels emboldened yeah. to tell you that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, exactly. I tried to rig the system just to let you know. And the other was the change to some of the local, <laughs> lo to, to some of the local... Um, mayoral elections, they changed the system so back it was no longer back to first past the post, which of course, again, yeah. benefits one mm. party or the other. Okay. Um, I think yeah. we have to wrap up. Our yeah. producer is waving at me frantically from the back, but this was an excellent discussion yes. and we could have done a whole other 45 minutes on it, I think. Um, Graham Smith, Simon Woolley, thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Westminster Reimagined, a bonus series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. Join us for the next episode of Westminster Reimagined, when Armando and I ask, why doesn't our government prioritise well-being? Whatever happened to the good life? If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.